Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. So, Lord, you know <clears throat> that even in the reading of those words that there's, there's pain in this room. There's marriages that haven't gone well. There's marriages in painful spots right now. There's marriages that have ended. And Lord, your gospel is enough to help us and pour out grace. Lord, you know that there's uh, a world swirling with all sorts of opinions about things like this. And Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that happily sit under your word and happily enjoy it and taste and see that it's good. So Lord, come now. Come to your people. Come to your church. Help us. Give us grace from your word through your spirit. Help me be clear and helpful. Lord, change us by your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me just say um, a couple words here. I loved Bob's prayer, because the first thing I wanted to say is that as we look at these various roles in Ephesians in this passage, the one thing we know for sure is that no one can do this perfectly, right? So this, this can't land as a kind of anchor for your soul that pulls you down and shows you all your imperfections. It has to land as a kind of invitation into picturing a good and beautiful thing for Christ and his church. Second, uh, Know that on this topic of marriage, when you get to a specific passage like this, uh, you all have specific context and questions, and know that I can't say them all today, right? I'm going to say a little more than I normally do on a Sunday, so bear with me, because I want to say a little bit more, but I'm not going to be able to say all the things. So I want to invite you if, you, if I say something, or you see something in the text that makes you say, hey, what about this, or what about that, reach out to me or one of our elders, we'd be happy to chat more. So I want to start this sermon by making a few comments of clarity, because one of my sisters has been exhorting me, clarity is kindness. So clarity is kindness, and I want to be clear about just a few things about South City's church. One, because there's so much confusion in the world we live in, and two, I'm just seeing so many new people in and out of these doors week by week that I'm just realizing you may or may not know anything about where we stand on these things. And so I want to be clear on three things. One, I want to make clear where we stand on the spectrum of opinions on roles in marriage. Two, where we place that in what we call our theological triage. How important is it? And three, how we view the kind of authority a husband actually has. And we're going to dive into the text after we kind of lay that groundwork. So first, if you are going to have the whole spectrum of views on these issues, you could probably range from kind of a, a patriarchal domineering view over here on one side and one extreme side and then an extreme feminist view way over here on the other side. And we don't land in either of those places, right? So take a deep breath, uh, where, whoever you are and wherever you are. Because I think both of those are dangerous and demeaning to women and men made in God's image. Both, both extremes, dangerous and demeaning to men and women made in God's image. More in the middle would be the views of egalitarianism and complementarianism. I almost hate saying them out loud because all the labels 
come with all sorts of unhelpful baggage. But for the sake of our time, you're going to let me use them and agree with me to mean them in the best versions possible. Okay, that's what you're going to do. You're going to say, go ahead, Pastor Dave. I know you mean it in the best version possible. I'm going to say, thank you. I appreciate that. That, that helps me. Uh, so what do those views say? What are the basic differences? Well, egalitarians would argue from the word of God that women and men are made in God's image, equal in worth and dignity, and that there are no distinctions in the roles God calls them to in the home and in the church. That's the basics. I don't have time to unpack all of it. They would argue that from scripture. Uh, Complementarians, which is where we land in our elder affirmation of faith, which means that's what the, the elders, the leaders here are committing themselves to teach and believe and commend to you. We believe that women and men are made in God's image, equal in worth and dignity, and that God in his word calls them to distinct roles in the home and the church. And today we're dealing with the home part of that reality. So that's, that's the spectrum. That's where we land. Now, how important do we think it is? Well, we think everything we say up here is really important because we think it's God's word, right? So that's one way to say it's really important because it's God's word. But we have this thing called theological triage, which means this is a level one issue, right? Like Jesus is God, really big deal, that Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve to die as a propitiation for our sins, right? That, that there's a trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe those things, we'd say, well, you're not really a Christian, and therefore you can't be a memory. And then there's other things that we'd say, well, it's not quite that important. It's not quite at that level. So you'll notice that if you went to our website and you looked at our About Us page and said, like, what did this church believe? You will not find this particular belief in our congregational affirmation of faith. It is in our elder affirmation of faith. I have to teach this way or I can't be an elder here, but it's not in our congregational affirmation of faith, which means you don't have to believe this exact particular thing to be a member here. You do have to believe from that that God has created women and men as equal in dignity and worth and yet two distinct biological sexes. You do have to believe that to be a member here. You do have to believe that marriage is only for one woman and one man. You do have to believe that to be a member here, but you don't have to believe in this particular expression of roles to be a member here. In other words, we don't think egalitarians are heretics or out to subvert the gospel, right? We think that they love the gospel and, and that they, they love just the Jesus that we love. And so this is not in our congregational affirmation of faith. And yet the leaders here are committed to teaching this way and praying that you'd see the, the beauty of it because we think the word holds it forth as beautiful and good. And third, we believe in different degrees of authority. And we try not to make these up on our own. We try to get them from the Bible. And for years, I've been looking for a simple way to talk about the different ways that authority functions, like with, with parents and with right, moms and dads and husbands and wives and the government and all these different realms of authorities. And we had Jonathan Lehman come and visit us last year. And he gave me these really helpful categories right from the word of God. And he's got a new book out on authority. If you're like, I want to dive into authority, like what is good, godly, helpful authority? I would commend his book to you. I got it this week and started reading it after I read all my notes from the time he was with us. And I read almost the whole thing in like a day or two. If you know me, that's not what I do, right? So it's 
a really good book. So I'm going to put a chart up here. Ethan's going to put a chart up here. I'm just going to walk you through what we think of these different kinds of authority. So there's one authority called the authority of command. That authority has the ability to lead in a way that binds the conscience and can actually follow that up with enforcement or discipline. So we see that in the church with the keys of the kingdom. You all, members of our church, have the ability to bring members in or discipline them out with the keys of the kingdom. We see in the Bible that the government has this thing called the sword, the ability to discipline and enact uh, punishment for order and judgment in what is good. And we see that with parenting, which has the rod. Now, I'm not commenting here on how much you appreciate our current government. Right? I'm not commenting here on whether or not you believe in spanking, but I'm acknowledging that the Bible gives those realms of authority the ability to discipline or enforce on their own terms. Whereas we don't see those kinds of things in the Bible with elders or husbands. I'd say they have the authority of counsel, right? Not of command, but of counsel. Now, we believe their authority is real. We believe it should be listened to and respected and honored because we think God says it in his word, but we don't believe they can discipline or enforce on their own terms. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Following? Helpful so far? If you want more, let me know. Rather, they exhort, they care, they speak with clarity into their homes, they encourage towards Christ's likeness as they lead by example. If you want, just say, Dave, give me in a sense an example of what you mean by these different kinds of things. What I mean is that how I interact with my wife should be a lot different than how I interact with my five-year-old. Does that make sense? Right? I don't tell my wife when to go to bed. Right? I don't tell her what to eat and what not to eat at certain times. Right? I, I can do that with my five-year-old for her good. There's an authority of command that I have, and as she grows, that's changing. Right? But I don't do the same things with my five-year-old as I do with my wife. And that might seem obvious, but sometimes in our circles, the danger can be that we don't act like it's that obvious. And we think that they're the same thing. In fact, one elder recently said to me, a husband that always feels the need to boss around or assert his authority over his wife is likely insecure and in pointing to his own deficiencies more than any of hers. We think that these realms of authority are, are different. That's the landscape and the general way that we see this kind of authority. But we're going to get all those details in our text. And so the context is when we now dive into the verses is that all these verses in the context of how we're called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to walk out our salvation, to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. And Paul is going to try to help the church in Ephesus understand what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in these various relationships and walk in a way that shines to the world all that is good and right and true. And today he's going to do it by pointing to Marriage. So we're going to dive into the text. Now that background makes sense. Where we land, how important, what kind of authority. So what does Paul say? So we're going to start at the end, the mystery, Christ and the church. We're going to start at the end because the end gives us the foundation for what comes first. So look at verses 31 to 33. Paul says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
So in verse 31, Paul makes us go back to Genesis 2.24 and the first marriage between Adam and Eve, the first human beings that show up in the Bible. And he says something profound about what happens all the way back in the beginning. He says that this mystery of marriage from the beginning has been pointing forward to Christ in the church. Right? In other words, it's not like God looked at marriage and said, oh, that'd be helpful. Like I could talk about how that's kind of like what Jesus did. He looked ahead to what Jesus was going to do and said, I'm going to create marriage as a picture of that for the world from the very beginning. In other words, marriage has never been merely about marriage. It's always been about more than marriage. It's always since the beginning existed to point to something bigger than itself. And notice the verse Paul chooses here first points to the reality of oneness. Right? Oneness between the man and the woman. The two become one flesh. And this points to the amazing reality that Jesus lays down his life to purchase the church and makes us his own body. We're one with Christ. This amazing story of union with Christ, which Pastor Nick's been talking about in his Sunday school class, like that we're one with him because he bought us and Paul points to that. And so if we said, well, how did we get there in Genesis 2? We could go to Genesis 1 and we'd see male and female both created in God's image and worthy of dignity and respect. We'd see them equal and yet distinct, sharing this mission to have dominion and to spread the image of God throughout the earth, very much the same, yet still different. In chapter 2, we would fast forward and see man's created from the dust and the, of the ground and life is breathed into them. And then we'd say his particular role. God says, you have dominion over this place I've put you in, right? Provide, protect, take care of this place. Keep evil out. Make sure good stays in. Be a hard worker. Be here doing this thing for the sake of my name. And then we'd see God say, man, it's not good that he's alone, right? It's not going to be good that he's alone. He can't do this by himself, right? He needs help. I'll make a helper fit for him. God then parades the animals before Adam, and Adam looks at all of them, names all of them, and then there isn't a helper found for him. And God brings the woman to man, and he goes, yeah, that's the one, right? That's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, right? He, he writes the first poem. He sings the first love song when he sees his wife. He's all in with this woman. And then he names the woman and, and sings this song to her. This naming and this creation narrative, the New Testament, over and over again draws on several times to point out the leadership role of the man in marriage. And so creation confirms this. We believe that this goes all the way back to creation and God's design for marriage. And I think the fall also confirms this. So if you go on beyond Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, when they fall into sin, the leadership of the man, I believe, is confirmed again because God goes to Adam first. Leadership in marriage is meant to be servant-hearted, life-laying-down responsibility for the good of those in your family, and God comes to Adam first and basically says, dude, what happened here? Right, if you read Genesis 3, 1-7, to what you'll see is that the, the you of the serpent is a plural you, which I take to mean that Adam is passively standing by, letting it all happen. As his wife is dealing with the serpent here, and so God comes and shows up and says, What'd you do? <laughs> Why don't you step in and lead and love and provide and protect like you were called to do? 
confirming he expected Adam to do that leading, providing, protecting, laying down his life. And when he talks to the woman, he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. In other words, now that sin has entered, a temptation will, not, will be to not be a glad partner and helper and dominion in the mission, following his lead, but to snatch that leadership away and for there always to be strife. So here's a summary of the mystery. The man has the call to lead in the task, but he cannot do it without the woman. They're interdependent on each other. In other words, if you're a man and you hear Genesis speaking where God says, it's not good, you're alone, you need help, and you think in your marriage, that's right, I'm in charge here, you're crazy. (laughs) You're absolutely crazy. God says it's not good for you to be alone. All of this was planned with the idea that it would picture Christ and the church. Marriage is created for something beyond itself. Marriage is created for something bigger than itself, and the particular roles point to eternal reality. So what we need to know as we now go back to Ephesians from Genesis is that whatever we're about to see of these roles goes all the way back to the beginning and is meant to shine something good, right, and true to the world around us about the relationship of Jesus and his precious bride, the church. That's what he wants us to see. This is a good, beautiful thing from the beginning, shining eternal Reality. So let's dive in now to the wives choosing submission. Verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So notice a few things first it doesn't say. Because there's all sorts of weird beliefs out there that just get really crazy if we go down the wrong path. Notice it doesn't say all women submit to all men. Right? You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. It's really, really important. We can read that into it, right? But it doesn't say that. It just says wives submit to your own husbands. Notice it doesn't say husbands make your wives submit. (laughs) Make them submit. It doesn't say that. It's calling the wife here to follow in obedience to the Lord in submission. Those are two distortions that can take us off the wrong path. But what does it say? It does say wives submit. So let's ask two questions. First, what does it mean that the husband's the head? And second, what does it mean that the wife submits in everything to her husband? So first, what does it mean that the husband is the head. Now, some people would say that the head just means the source. doesn't have any connotations of authority. It doesn't have any connotations of of leadership. And I would just say, I I don't think that works in the way that Paul uses the word in other places. I'll just give you two examples, though there's about seven or eight I could give you. Paul seems to have the idea of head as associated with authority in some measure of Christ over the church. And that's the comparison here, is we're comparing... Christ in the church to husbands and wives. And so in Ephesians 1, 21 to 23, Paul is talking about the authority of Christ over all things. Then he zooms in and says that Christ is the head over the church. This measure of authority, he's leading it, he's over it. Or in Colossians 2, 10, he says, Christ is the head of all rule and authority. So what does this mean practically? I think it means... The husband has real leadership and authority 
in marriage. I think it has to mean that the way Paul uses this word. So what does submission in everything mean, right? We said some things it doesn't mean. But if it says in everything, I don't think the most natural reading is, well, actually in nothing, right? So, so what, what does it actually mean? What is it? So here's my triad. And other people have tried and probably done better, but this is my triad after studying and praying all week. I think it's a general disposition with actions that match to follow, help, and encourage the leadership of your husband to lead your family into maturity in Christ. So I'll say it again. I think it's a general disposition with actions that match to follow, help, and encourage the leadership of your husband to lead your family into maturity in Christ. I say a general disposition because unlike Jesus, your husband will not be perfect. He won't be perfect. So we as a church must always submit ourselves to every word of Jesus all the time, right? Without fail, never any exception. We just have to, right? That's, that's what this is teaching us as a church, <laughs> if that's the comparison, right? Church, submit yourself to Jesus. All times, all places, everything is commands, matters. Commands are to be obeyed. And wives should have that disposition with actions that match to follow, help, encourage your husband's leadership, but you can never follow him into sin, right? Because you submit to the Lord first, and if the Lord and your husband are at odds, who do you submit to? The Lord, right? You can say that loudly, right? The Lord. And let me say clearly as well, I don't have time to get into all of it, but let me say clearly as well, you don't ever need to submit yourself to abusive authority that seeks to manipulate, physically harm, dominate, or make perverse sexual demands. It's not what this is calling wives to and it happens. It's not what you have to submit to, right? All those things, right? You'd say, no, I submit to Jesus. Those things aren't okay. I submit to Jesus. But for wives who are married to imperfect but good-willed Christ-following husbands, it's an opportunity to obey Jesus in submitting to your own husband and to paint a picture to the world that it's a good thing to submit to Jesus as the church. Get a chance to paint the beautiful picture that that is. Submission really doesn't mean a lot of things, but it really does mean following. It really does mean seeking to help carry out the general direction of the leader as an intimate partner, partner that is one with her husband. It might even mean sometimes, rarely, submitting in a wisdom decision where, uh, you know, where consensus can't be gained. It might mean all those things as a, as a way to show off that it's a good thing to trust good leadership that we have in Christ. Notice this text does not say anything about who does the dishes or mows the lawn. Right? Like my wife was mowing the lawn eight months pregnant. Right? And I was like, baby, if anyone asks you, make sure they tell me you want to. Right? You want to do that? Um, doesn't say anything all right, about who does the taxes or folds the laundry. Doesn't say anything about that. Right, those things can be divided up by gifting inclination or like a coin flip of, you know, who wants to do that or not do that. Wives, this text does not tell you to turn off your mind, does not tell you to stop studying the Bible, does not tell you to never come alongside your husband to help him see where he could follow Jesus more faithfully or lead your family more faithfully. In fact, though, I would say the oneness and the shared mission you have says that you must do that. You must do those things sometimes. And then when you do it, the key is you're not doing it as a condemning voice, reminding him of all his failures, 
but as an encouraging partner who wants a, a faithful leader and from a disposition of gladness to follow. Like, I want to see you raise up and lead our family, right? With, with kind, welcoming comments like, hey, want to lean in with the kids right now? Right? Hey, you want to want to help our family get back on track in this moment? Hey, you want to this, you want to that, right? Encouraging, inviting. So the question for the wives in the room is, wives, have you been choosing to obey Jesus and live in this kind of disposition with your husbands to show the world it's a happy thing to submit to good leadership in Jesus? This is a command from Jesus, right? It's one to be followed for your good and the good of the church and the good of the world. All right, next point, the husbands. Authority of counsel. So husbands, let's look at this responsibility of leadership for us in verses 25 to 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. There's a command repeated in this section, verse 25. Love your wives. Verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives. Remember what this mystery points to. Christ in the church. And so it's no surprise then that our calling as husbands is to love like Jesus loves the church. In this paragraph, like Bob prayed earlier, gives some pretty extreme callings to us that like we know we're not going to do perfectly. So we need grace and help. So let me just kind of list what we see here. And as I list what's expected and called of us, I'm just going to ask us some questions as husbands. Ask us some questions to kind of live into what we're called to be and called to do. So number one, number one calling is to lay down our lives like Christ laid down for his, his life for the church. So husbands, this is a good question, right? Do you lay down your life for your wife? Do you give yourself up for her? Do you seek to be self-giving in your leadership, in your intentionality, in your kindness, in your care of your wife. Like, this is an extreme calling. This is comparing our calling to Christ going all the way to the cross. That's what this is. Lay down your life like that. Like, that kind of extreme mentality. In premarital counseling, I always combine this call with the one in First Peter to not be harsh and to live with our lives according to knowledge. And I look at the guy and I say, listen, man, if you enter into this, the rest of your life, the, the highest calling, the pinnacle of everything you do is to know this woman so well that you know how to die for her. And it's awesome <laughs> if you'll give yourself to it. It's great if you'll give yourself to it. The call of the husband is to know your wife's strengths and weaknesses and sorrows and hopes and joys and fears and struggles and to lay down your life for her. Do you lead in the hard things or do you leave those to her? Right? Do you love in the hard places or do you say, hey, would you go talk to them? Right? Do you give of your energy, your life, your time, your soul that your wife might flourish? Do you take initiative and leadership for the spiritual and physical good of your home? Do you do that? Are you giving yourself that? You're like, this is what I'm made for. This is what God calls me to. Are you the good kind of tired? 
because you give yourself up every day for the sake of your bride and family. I'm not talking tired because you had one too many beers or something and then you stayed up and played video games. I'm not talking about that kind of tired. I'm not saying that to demean you. I'm saying like the kind of tired that's like you got up early to read your Bible, to get filled up with the word of God, to, to pray, to help get the kids ready, right? to do whatever it takes to, to then go and work hard and come home. When you get to the driveway, pray for grace to love your family well again until they fall asleep and your head hits the pillow and goes, oh my goodness, I got nothing else. And you get to do it again for the sake of Jesus and the good of your family. Like that kind of tired. Are you that kind of tired for the sake of your family? Two, Christ had the goal that his bride, the church, would be presented in beauty, sanctified, growing. And that's us. That's all of us. Right? That's what Christ does for all of us. Not just women, but all of us. Right? We're the church. Christ does this for men and women. And then men, we're called to take the lead in reflecting that in our families. So here are some questions. Are your goals, prayers, interactions with your wife aimed at helping her be beautiful in Jesus Christ? Are they aimed at helping her see and become more mature and at rest and hopeful in Jesus? Or in your heart of hearts, do you just wish you'd be a little bit different? That would make your life easier. You know what I mean? You know the difference there? Like, I want good for her. I want her to grow maturity in Christ versus I just wish she wouldn't do that anymore. Right? You feel the difference. Is your heart aimed at her heart? Is your heart aimed at her good? Or do you just want her to change for some way that serves you better? Are you in it for you or for her? Are you in it for you or for God? Right? Jesus wasn't in it for him, but for us and for the glory of God. Are your words and tone and encouragements and leadership in line with, saturated, informed by the word of God? I just tell you, husbands, like the, the main tools we have for leadership are the word of God in prayer. That's what we got. Right? Those are the main tools for a husband who is humble enough to know his opinion is not nearly as helpful as help from God. Your opinion is just not as helpful as help from the word of God. Right? The humble husband will saturate himself in the word and in prayer, knowing he's been entrusted with a precious daughter of God to love and to lead and knowing he's not sufficient on his own to do it well or in a way that reflects Jesus without help. And the humble husband will often offer words of encouragement and comfort from the word while not being afraid to really lead and really exhort and really correct at times his wife towards more of the beauty of Christ and away from sin. A family should feel, I don't know a better word to say it, <laughs> a family should feel the good presence and leadership of a faithful husband. Should feel it like He's home. It's good. He's for us, not against us. He's engaged. He's here. He's helping. Family should feel that from a faithful husband. Does your family feel your presence for their good? Three, Christ nourishes and cherishes his bride as his own body. Would it be obvious to your wife that you love her as much as you love you? Not always obvious for me, right? Would it be obvious to her that you want to pour into her, nourish her in a way that she grows and has space to flourish in her giftings as much as you grow and have space to use your giftings? Do you laugh together 
Is your presence happy, engaged, warm? Or are you brooding, distant, and cold? Right? I'm guessing you weren't brooding and distant and cold when you were dating. Right? So like, when did that happen? When did that become okay? Right? Are you warm, engaged, drawing near? Do you know her gifts? Do you find ways for her to enjoy those and bless others with them? Like, like, hey, I'll take care of this so you can go use your gifts. Go do your thing. Go be a blessing where you want to be a blessing. Would it be obvious to your wife that she's cherished? Right? That she's precious to you? Does your wife know that she's precious to you? That you love that you're married to her? That you love spending time with her caring for her, leading her, loving her, investing in her, and listening to her, that you might die for her and help her grow in Christ and flourish in who God's made her to be. And again, what's this pointing to? So church, you're like, I'm not married. I don't know what you're talking about right now, right? This is what Jesus does for us as a church. (laughs) Nourishes us, cherishes us, right? Loves us, leads us, works for our maturity and our good, right? This is a sweet reflection. This is what Jesus does for all of us here. And husbands, you get the privilege of leaning in in leadership in these things. Then finally, as Jesus calls our wives to submit and follow as the partners that we need, just say it's an especially ugly thing when we use our leadership to harm or to hurt. Especially ugly thing when those who have been given responsibility to lead and to have some authority use that leadership and authority to harm or to hurt. But we will. We will because we're not Jesus. Right? And so I think that the final call in here would be that we ought to be quick to repent when we don't lead and we don't love as an accurate, helpful picture of the love of Christ. In other words, leaders need to be lead repenters. Always, leaders need to be lead repenters. That's where I'll end with the husband. Singles, uh, help your married sisters and brothers in this. I hope like lots of families and couples will get to know singles and like bring them into your family. And then singles, you can look and go, hey, remember, remember Ephesians 5. Remember how to love your wife. Remember how to... Uh, submit to your husband. Remember these things. Like you can help us and you can remind us of these things. You can encourage us and pray for us and speak the word to us, right? Just like all Christians do all the time. Right? Just say this single women, don't settle for a guy who's not saturated in word and prayer and treats you with the kindness and compassion of Christ. Like you don't need a man to be fulfilled. <laughs> you have Jesus. Like singleness is a beautiful calling. Right? Marriage is not the pinnacle of Christian maturity. Some are called to singleness. Some are called to be married. And so to say, women, be strong in the Lord. Right? Be content in Jesus. Know that he'll faithfully lead and love and always be with you. Single men, saturate yourselves in word and prayer. Be content in Jesus as enough. Right? Use whatever, uh, get used to using whatever strength or authority you have in any area of your life for good, to serve, to love, to go lower. And I'll just say this, the main way we're all going to interact as the church, most of the time is as sisters and brothers, right? That's the, that's the singles and the marriage. We're sisters and brothers, and we ought to seek to help each other move towards Jesus together in mutual encouragement and exhortation. So just let me end this way. 
Because I always am asking myself whenever I get to these texts, why? Like, why these roles? Why does God do it this way? Right? We can all admit, like, there's sometimes it's like, man, is it really a good idea to have the men in charge here? Right? But why does God say it, but we submit to it because he says it? Well, we know it points to Christ in the church. That's part of it. But, like, what's underneath that point? What's underneath that, that picture? Here's what I think it is. I think it's meant to show that good authority and good leadership and good strength is a beautiful thing to receive from Jesus. And our glad submission to his leadership is a beautiful way to live life. I'm trying to show a picture of that. What I mean then is in general, the physical strength of men called to provide and protect and lead their wives is a picture of the strength of Jesus working for our good to provide, protect, and lead us. In other words, this picture is pointing to Christ in the church and pointing to the reality that Jesus is a good leader. He's faithful, he sacrifices, he loves, he nourishes, he cherishes, and it's a happy thing to say, yes, I want to follow you, right? I want to be with you, I want to be one with you, Jesus, that's what I want. And it's a horrible distortion when men use that for our gain rather than our wives' good, and it's a beautiful thing when men grow in self-giving sacrifice that points to the good of, to, to the good of good authority to the world, right? That way we can make it a happier thing. Like I want it to be a happy thing for our wives to gladly obey the command Jesus gives them to submit. Right? I want the, the world to look and see both sides of the beautiful picture being painted about Christ in the church, even if imperfectly. And in this way, I think this is the point of this whole thing. In this way, the sacrificial, joyful, all-knowing, all-in, all for us, providing, protecting, preserving, preparing, pursuing, prospering love of Christ for his church can have a clear picture to the world that needs his love and right now cannot imagine any kind of authority could ever be a good thing. We can hold it up and say it can be. Jesus is perfect. We're not perfect, but Jesus is perfect and we hope we point to him a little bit. We point to how good it is to have a servant-hearted leader and how good it is to follow in that leadership. So you pray with me. So Lord, we, we just know um, those husbands in the room, we know we can't live up to this. We know we haven't lived up to this perfectly. And Lord, that's an understatement. Some of us are failing miserably. Some of us have uh, broken our wives' hearts over and over again. Some of us need to repent even now. And Lord, uh, wives can't carry this out perfectly either. This is a hard thing. It's a hard thing to follow imperfect men. So Lord, wherever there's distortions of this picture, or where there's abuse, manipulation, uh, where there's uh, perversity, where there's unfaithfulness, Lord, would right now be a time of confession. We lay it down at the foot of the cross, plead for forgiveness, and go and try to make it right with the one you've given us to love and to lead. And Lord, where there's been uh, a grabbing and a, a strife, Lord, and a, a bitterness, uh, Lord, from, from wives who have good-willed husbands who are trying their best, Lord, just help us confess it and lay it down at the foot of the cross. Lord, and go and make it right to the one that God has given us to, to love. And Lord, for us as a church, Lord, this is a picture. 
And so, Lord, wherever we as a church, individually and collectively, where we have not submitted to your commands for us, Lord, forgive us. Lord, help us now, all of us, to go, where have I heard the voice of Jesus say things that are good and right and true and said, I'm going to do something different? Or where have we neglected your commands that are meant to lead us into life and flourishing? So, Lord, help us. We need your help, Lord. Lord, we need your help as sisters and brothers in this place to mutually encourage and exhort one another towards the beauty of our Savior who came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve to die, rose again to conquer death, and now fills us with his spirit that we might actually begin to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, walk in obedience. So Lord, we all need your help. We all need your grace as husbands and wives, as sisters and brothers in the church. Lord, we need your help to gladly submit to you. We need your help to do what you tell us to do and see it as a good, happy thing. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to have the ushers uh, come forward. If you want to come or if you don't want to come up to get communion, you can just raise your hand and they will bring it to you right in your seat if you'd rather stay there. Uh, If you're here and you're not yet right now trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, we just say this isn't a meal for you. This is a meal for those who trust in Jesus Christ. But we hope that you would hear about the Savior who lays down his life for the church And you would see all the other things you've been running after as foolish and empty and vain. And you'd say, I want that Savior to save me from my sins and bring me into this family. If you're here and there's some sin you've been caught in uh, that you're not yet willing to lay down at the foot of the cross, uh, we can't pretend to fellowship with sin while we fellowship with Jesus. And so we've just been praying that you would lay down uh, those sins at the foot of the cross. This would be a moment of repentance and you'd come in fellowship with Jesus, say, Jesus, help me. I want to fight this sin. I want to overcome this. And I want to walk forward in new life and new holiness. And if you're here and there's bitterness in this body especially that you're not yet willing to lay down, you're so angry that you just don't want to talk to that person or deal with that thing, um, I ask you to not take this. This is a moment to show our unity in Christ. We're going to disagree on all sorts of things. But our unity in Christ is what this meal is meant to picture. And so been praying all week that when there's bitterness in this body, this would be a moment, and maybe it's a moment in marriages. <laughs> maybe it's the moment that's, that's most needed. Right? It's easy to talk way out here, but maybe like right in here, it's a moment in marriage where you need to confess sin and repent and be one again and, and come and say, Jesus, help us. Help us. You've, you've paid the price for us. Help us forgive and receive forgiveness. If you're here, like I always say this, You're here and you're broken and you're hurting and you're struggling against sin and there's relationships that are messy here and there, but oh, how you want more of Jesus, how you want more repentance in your life, how you want more forgiveness, how you want restored relationships. This is a meal for broken sinners who want the grace of Jesus to sanctify them, help them, restore them. It's not a table for perfect people, it's a table for sinners. Why don't you bow your heads and I'll say the words of institution. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And then in the same way, he took the cup after supper, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So talk to Jesus and come on up when you're ready.